Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Again, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. We started a series last week in the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to continue that here this morning. Uh, so go ahead and turn there and find that. Uh, as you're turning, we are in a section of Scripture here uh, that we started last week, and we looked at last week Paul's personal experience. A lot of times when you read the scriptures, uh, you may come across passages and sort of stories and narrative form that make you ask a question. And the question that we often ask when we read stories in narrative form where God gives us a story of what happens between characters and conflicts and opposition to God's people in a certain time or place is this question of what were they thinking? What was it like for them to experience the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night? What was it like for Jonah in the belly of the fish? What was it like to have Jesus ask you, where are we going to find food to feed all of these people? And the apostles to go, we don't have enough money to feed all these people. All we have are two loaves and a few fishes. And what is that for so many? Uh, and when you read the Bible, it's, it, the beauty of the scriptures is that the Bible invades our personal experience, doesn't it? That when we read truths in the scriptures, that the scriptures talk about people in times and in places with struggles and fears and worries and anxieties and, and God who enters in to those experiences through his word or through intervening in their life in particular ways. And when you go through maybe perhaps the life of David, you'll have David on the run. And then what God does for us in the scriptures is give us periods in the Psalms where David writes and exposes his heart to show us, this is what I was feeling. This is what I was praying. This is uh, how I was hoping in God and what he was doing. And we need that, don't we? We need God's word to be able to speak to us in our subjective experience. That God's word is not just an encyclopedia of facts. It's a cataloging of experiences and relationships and disappointments and fears and aspirations and God invading and intersecting our lives and our hearts and our experiences with the truth of who he is to show us what he is like. And there's probably at least one place here in the New Testament that gives us that, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week we looked at Paul's experience, right? We looked at Paul and how he was walking with God through affliction and through pressure. And he said, when I walked through affliction and pressure, I experienced God to do something and to be something for me that I didn't know before. He describes God last week as the God of all comfort. And he ends where we ended last week with 2 Corinthians 1 verse 7 where he said, our hope for you is certain that as you experience the afflictions of Christ, as you experience suffering for his name, I promise you and I am confident that God will meet you there. And that was our great encouragement last week is to say when we align our priorities with God's priorities, we are guaranteed to experience intimacy and relationship and to know God in deep ways that we wouldn't without those experiences. When you talk to people who have walked through significant physical struggles, significant hardships for their faith, 
places in life where they came to the end of their selves, you will talk to people who know what it means to walk with God. And Paul is going to continue that here this morning. And what Paul's going to do here is show the Corinthian people another side of God that he discovered as a result of his afflictions. And then what he's going to do is invite the Corinthian church into it. Because what Paul said last week, there's some distance in what we said last week between Paul's experience of suffering and knowing the God of comfort and the aspiration of knowing that God for the Corinthians. It doesn't seem in the book of Corinthians that the Corinthian church is really fighting against the culture, that they're taking a stand in their city. Rather, the culture is encroaching upon the church. And when Paul begins this letter, uh, he's, the, the church is encroached upon by false teachers, by people who name the name of apostle, but who operate not like Paul does, who have different motivations. And Paul begins this saying, there's coming a time where you'll have to take a stand. And God will meet you there. So there's a distance. We haven't experienced that yet. Paul has experienced, and through his experience, we learn who God will be for us in our affliction. Well, we're going to get another inside track on Paul's experience. We're just going to look at four little bitty verses. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verse, uh, chapter, let me start again. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into this here together and see what God would teach us. Father, for these few minutes, we pray for your grace, that we would see something about you, perhaps, that we've never considered before. Father, no doubt there are those who walk into this room this morning facing situations that have brought them to the point of despair, and hopelessness, where they see no way out. And Father, I would pray that as a result of this text, that this church and the people in this room and those who are watching this online might experience a, uh, a resurrection of sorts of their faith. That they would see you in new ways and you would uh, change our hearts and change our perspectives to see some things about you perhaps that we've never considered before. And that we would leave this place more confident of your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. More aware, seeing things in our lives that make you visible in our hearts and make you visible in the life of this church. So Father, we're dependent on you for that. We have no strength to bring about the things that we pray for and we look to you to answer and to come alongside and to intervene in our lives that we would see you for who you are. We give thanks for Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want want you to look at verse 7 just as a a quick on-ramp here. He says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 7, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. That was Paul's aspiration for them. It was Paul the tour guide saying, I know that when you experience affliction, God will meet you in that. Now, 8 through 11 is a sequence of explanatory statements. So Paul is going to build off that hope, that certain confidence that he has in the Corinthian church for God to meet them when suffering takes hold. And he's going to explain it starting in verse 8. Verse 8. For we do not want you... To be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Paul mentions this phrase, I don't want you to be unaware, like five or six times in his letters. 
So that as Paul begins this certain hope and certain confidence that he has for the Corinthian church about what they will experience when suffering comes, he also wants to make sure that they aren't ignorant. That there's something about their Christian life and their Christian experience that Paul doesn't want them to overlook. And I want to make two points on that. One is about Paul. Paul doesn't go through suffering in 2 Corinthians 1, and we'll see this later on in the book, where he, um, he uh, I don't know what the word is, he, he reduces it. That he doesn't tell you exactly how hard it was. Paul never in 2 Corinthians goes, it wasn't that bad. Night and the day in the deep, yeah, no big deal. It wasn't that hard. So Paul when he begins here in the beginning of this letter, wants us to wrestle with the fact that walking with Christ for Paul is hard. Walking with Christ for Paul comes with affliction and suffering, and he doesn't hide it or conceal it or reduce it or explain it away. He says, church, I want you to know what I went through. I want you to understand what it means to walk with Christ the way I have been walking with Christ. Paul is not a superman. He's not someone who explains away his suffering saying, Jesus is so good, my suffering ain't that bad. He says, no, the suffering is hard. The suffering is really difficult. You're going to see how bad in this text. So that's your first one is how Paul wants you to see himself. Paul isn't some super apostle where he just kind of floats through life. The other one is how we see suffering. Because for Paul to let you and I know, for Paul to let the Corinthian church know that there's real suffering, real affliction, real difficulty out there for following Christ, make sure that the church is not ignorant. The church has to be aware when they commit to follow Christ and follow his word that they will face opposition in the culture. You will. It is inevitable. Anybody ever prepare for a hurricane? Yeah, you had a few. Do you ever prepare for the hurricane during the hurricane? Not one guy's nodding. <laughs> no, you don't. You always prepare for the hurricane before the hurricane, right? We've got a whole pantry full of all sorts of things that we are prepared for when we need to leave. Because we can't just wing it with six kids, throw them in the car, and drive. We need stuffies, animals, blankets, toys, books, all sorts of stuff in preparation for a hurricane hitting. Let me show you this. So Paul wants the Corinthian church. We don't want you to be unaware. We don't want you, church, to be ignorant. Let me show you this. Keep your finger in 2 Corinthians and go to your right to 1 Peter. One of the struggles that a church will have when it follows Christ is getting surprised by suffering. And Paul doesn't want the Corinthian church to be surprised. Maybe they haven't gone through significant difficulties for their faith just yet. Maybe the world is encroaching upon the life of the Corinthian church. First, I'm sorry, 1 Peter verse four, uh, chapter 4. I'm getting my verses and chapters backwards here. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm just going to read verse 1 for you and then skip down. See 1 Peter 4 verse 1? Therefore, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That arm yourselves is, is exactly what it sounds like. Be prepared. 
Be armed and ready for what you're about to face. Now go down to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't get surprised by the fact that when you stand for Christ in a culture, you will face opposition. We said this last week. Every movement toward godliness and holiness and intimacy with God is uphill. It is constant. You are always, you don't stumble into holiness. You don't stumble into uh, intimacy with God. It is effort. And Paul tells Timothy, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Look at what he goes on, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Here's, go back to 2 Corinthians. Here's Paul's point. I don't want you to be unaware that it's hard to follow Christ. I also want you to be aware that it's going to be hard for you to follow Christ. Now, in Paul's experience here, Paul is going to do the same thing in this theme in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, is that he's going to open up his heart and show you his internal experience. He's going to talk about what affliction did inside of him. And he's not even that specific about the affliction. The Corinthian church probably knew what it was, but Paul doesn't even tell us. I'll show you maybe some pieces here that, that help us understand perhaps what it was. But he's not specific even to tell you all of the essence of what this affliction was over here. What he is going to be specific about is what happened on the inside of him. He's going to be specific about the things that God was doing in me through this affliction. Because if we're going to know the God of comfort, Corinthian church, I promise that you're going to have to go through affliction. Now he's going to talk about that affliction. Look at what he goes on to say. The, the affliction that happened to us where? In Asia. Do you have a cross-reference there? You probably have two. One is 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, uh, uh, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus? And it's almost a throwaway sentence that Paul puts in there in talking about the resurrection and how powerful the resurrection is to reorient our heart and our perspective on what it means to go through suffering in this life. Paul says, what do I gain if I went toe-to-toe with beasts? The other cross-reference you might have is Acts 19, and I want you to see this. Go back to your left now to Acts 19. <clears throat> Acts 19 works like this. Paul encounters people who've only experienced the baptism of John for the repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. They haven't experienced the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them in the beginning of Acts 19 which is followed by uh, the sons of Sceva, who are Jewish exorcists who try to uh, cast demons out in the name of the Jesus who is preached by Paul. So there's spiritual warfare that happens 
And this spiritual warfare gets so bad and so intense that this demon leaps on these people who don't know Christ and are trying to use incantation and magic words to cast them out, beats them all naked and bleeding so they all run. It's a hilarious passage. It's so funny. You can read it later today. Then what happens as a result of this fear that grips the city is that everybody starts to sell all their magical artifacts. They bring all of their scrolls and all of the uh, mystic arts that they have been practicing and they have a big burning and they put them all in the middle and they set them all on fire and it said it's 50,000 pieces of silver. It's an incredible amount of money that all of this, uh, this spiritualism, mysticism, spiritism, uh, scrolls is worth. And then, now, now would you agree like, it's okay to preach Christ in a city until it starts messing with the economy. Because when following Jesus starts to mess with the economy, we've got a real, hey, believe what you want, but when it starts costing me my trade and my business, and now our, my line of work is compromised because people are turning to faith and not buying the things that I sell them to practice their false spiritual arts, then we have a problem. And that's exactly what Acts 19 is about. Look at Acts 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning a way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and say, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, we could spend time talking about that speech for an hour or so. There's no rejoicing for the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. There's no rejoicing because Jesus is preached. The entire city, read the rest of Acts 19, the entire city turns out against Paul. Now, come back to 2 Corinthians. When Paul writes this, it may be this Acts 19 reality. It may not be. It may be the Acts 15 reality that Paul actually fought with beasts. It may be Paul is tying those two together. But the theme that I want you to understand and I want you to think about here is this. When the Christian faith encounters and confronts the idolatries of the culture and the age, Christians will have problems. Christians will face affliction and persecution and disagreement. There's one thing for the Christian faith to be reasonable and logical and being prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. But never forget that the Christian faith is a distinctly spiritual thing. That it pulls down thoughts and speculations raised up against the knowledge of Christ and takes thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And you don't have that in the culture. 
You have a culture that's committed to idolatry and money and getting what they want and having their entire life worship around something that is not Jesus and is not for the glory of his name. And when you start preaching and teaching about Jesus, you invade a culture with the one true and living God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, all the idolaters have a problem with that. Christians in the New Testament and Roman times were not persecuted because they worshiped Christ. They were persecuted because they worshiped only Christ. So Paul recognizes, I don't want this to be any little minor note in your life. When you step out as a Christian into the world, and face the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Be prepared for affliction. Be prepared for opposition to the things that you believe. Don't get surprised. Now, that's half of one verse. You with me so far? Look at what he says. Here's, here's what Paul is going to do for you. Is he, like I said, he's going to show you his heart. Affliction is out there, opposition is out there, difficulty is out there. Is that how I say difficulty? Difficulty? Syllables. Look at the remainder, the remainder of the verse. Four, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. Utterly burdened is literally the Greek word hyperbole. You ever use hyperbole? Usually hyperbole has to do with exaggeration, doesn't it? that you take the joke too far. Hyperbole literally means to throw beyond. It's too far. It's too high. It's too difficult. It's too weighty. I'm so utterly burdened beyond our strength. He's like a ship laid down and laden down with too much cargo. That it is beyond our strength. We were so beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. The word for despair is not an emotional reality. It's a, uh, it's a navigational reality. Paul says literally in the Greek that there was no passage. There's no way out of this situation that I am so utterly weighed down, it is so difficult to my heart and to my soul that I recognize that I have Pharaoh behind me and the Red Sea in front of me and I can either drown or get murdered. There's nowhere else to go. There's no other hope that I have. This passage has blocked it off for me. Look at how he continues to explain the inner life of the apostle. What do you think the inner life of the apostles was like? Do you ever have this as a Christian where you see other people who are walking with Christ and you feel like, man, they've just got this Christian thing down. They don't ever worry. They don't ever feel burdened. They all just kind of like float through their troubles and their difficulties, quoting verses and naming the name of Christ. And uh, they just have a real ease about them on the, inner, on the inside of them. They're kind of Christian Zen masters. But I don't experience that. I get worried and anxious and I pray and I feel burdened and I don't know what to do and I feel confused. And the thing that about 2 Corinthians 1 here is incredibly encouraging to me and I hope it's encouraging to you is that this is what it's like for Paul to be an apostle so that we should not get it in our minds that our inner spiritual life should be any different. You with me? 
it's okay for Paul to feel what he's feeling. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Literally, the the Greek goes like this. It says, um, it goes, uh, let me get it right. He says this, but ourselves, within ourselves, the sentence of death. Felt is a somewhat translational help to bring you into the inner experience of the Apostle Paul. It's as if Paul walks into the courtroom of his mind where his beliefs are formed and his convictions are realized and the lawyers and the judge and the jury and all of the conversation in the courtroom goes death. Certainly death. This situation has no prospect of life. It's not as if we are weak and we need strength. It's that there is only death ahead of us. Paul got to the point where following Jesus Christ brought him mentally and spiritually and experientially to the point of saying, I am about to die for Christ. I'm about to go to the end and the things that I have preached will come to an end and my life is over. You ever, uh, I've been in car wrecks two times in my life. Uh, One, I was uh, hit on the back quarter panel uh, by a lady. The other one, I was on my way back, I went to Penn State University, and uh, I was trying to go from eastern Pennsylvania to central Pennsylvania, where Penn State is. And uh, if you know anything about weather, weather comes from the west to the east across the U.S. So I left eastern Pennsylvania with a snowstorm on the way from the west, and I thought, I can make it. I can make it to central Pennsylvania. Two hours, 20 minutes, no big deal. I can get there in time. And I made it within one mile of the exit before snow started coming down. And I Uh, was too close to the tractor trailer in front of me. I couldn't see around the tractor trailer to see all the lights that were red. And I passed a police officer with his lights on on the right-hand side. And I thought, I'm good. I'm driving the way I need to. I'm not going too fast. Got to hurry. Got to make it. Three or four inches of snow on the ground. I'll be all right. You can see where this story's going. Uh, The tractor trailer stops. I stop. And between me stopping and the tractor trailer stopping was a good... I don't know, 40 minutes of going through this experience in my brain where I said, I'm stopping, but I'm not stopping. I'm still driving. And that guy is definitely stopped. And between my feet on the brake and the stopped tractor trailer in front of you is that moment where you come to the point of certainty, isn't it? You ever been there? Where you have the realization, I'm going to hit him. I'm definitely going to hit him. There's no way out here. There's nothing that I can do to make sure that I don't hit him. And that's where Paul is. Paul has been brought to the point of absolute certainty and conviction in his heart that he's going to die. I know it. Everything within me. I'm definitely certain that this is about to happen to me. You know... Now, if this applies at all in any small part to our Christian experience, 
Would you say Paul is living the victorious Christian life right now? Well, Steve, God will not give you more than you can handle. Paul, you need to understand that God doesn't give us more than we, that's one of those great Christian lot, like that and like God helps those who help themselves. Neither of those are in the Bible. So there is a inner subjective Christian reality where we come to the end of ourselves and recognize that it's not that we're weak, but that we are certain of our deadness. It's not that we need a little bit of strength from God to make it through this situation, but that we're so convinced that we are dead, that we are without the resources to face this situation, that we're so at the end of ourselves and so settled in that reality that God shows up. And this entire text turns on three-letter word right in the middle of this verse. What's the word? But. That's where I was. This was my experience. But that was two. Remember what God said, the comfort, Paul said the comfort of God was for. Right? It said it was, it was there so that we might be able to comfort those with the comfort that we have received from God. Now, Paul takes his Christian experience. He says that was for a reason. This is the purpose behind God bringing us into places where we are convinced that we're unable, where we're convinced that we can't do it, where everything within us says, I am dead to rights, I have no future, I have no hope, I have no certainty, I am totally convinced on the inside that I'm dead. But that was to make us rely. Now, rely is not necessarily a faith word. It's a result of faith, but it's not a faith word here. What it is here, it's translated in other places throughout the New Testament as persuade, or convince, or appeal. Do you have a cross-reference there in that verse? You should have one spot that says Luke 18, 9. Do you have that? Luke 18, 9 says this. Don't turn there. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus told this parable so that there might be people there who are exposed because they're trusting in the wrong thing. That they're putting their reliance and their persuaded, settled conviction about their life, not into Christ and not into God, but in themselves. And Paul says, this was to make us rely not on ourselves. Even Paul has to battle the inner temptation to put our hope in our strength, our hope in our ability our hope in what we bring to the table, in our certain financial situation, in our relative good health and good looks and success in excellence that we bring through our career. This entire affliction experience that brought me to the end of myself where I was certain I was done had a goal and a purpose behind it. God isn't, remember how I confessed my big great fear last week? 
of going through purposeless suffering. Paul says here that this affliction and suffering had a purpose in me. It was designed for me to move my reliance and my conviction and my persuasion about myself from myself to God. Now he tells you something about God in this passage. This is the second thing we've learned about God in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The first one is that God is a God of all what? Starts with C. Comfort. The other one is right here. To make us rely not on ourselves but on God who gives a little bit of strength when we need it. But on God who gives a little bit of encouragement when we need it. But on God who comes alongside to supplement the strength that we already have to accomplish the things that we want to do. No. This was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. This is so, man. There are two different ways to approach affliction. If you're going to face affliction for your faith, suffering for your faith, walking uphill in the convictions you have at work and in your family, when you raise your kids and when you go throughout your work day and all of those sorts of things, one is to believe that you just need a little bit of help. That you're relatively successful in your line of work and God, if you would uh, work in the situations and the relationships around me to help me succeed and be successful for your namesake and glory, obviously, not my own. But God, would you help me get along in the things that I need to do? The other is to believe that as you go about your marriage and in your workplace and in your raising of your kids and your education is to believe that you are absolutely dead and you need a resurrection. Those are different ways of living, amen? And Paul has come to the point where he now experiences God in a new way that perhaps he hadn't experienced him before. Because this affliction had to uproot the self-sufficiency idol that has grown the tendrils of its roots deep into his heart. And affliction had to come to the place where his self-reliance died. And that God had to reach in and touch and raise the dead. Not merely a physical resurrection, mind you. Paul didn't die here and get resurrected. It was an experiential, subjective resurrection. See, a lot, Paul takes the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the future resurrection of all people at the end, and he takes that subjective experience of knowing and experiencing God as a resurrecting God and brings it into his experience in life. So he takes the power of God, the resurrecting God, and says, I know him in this new way. I experience him in this new way. Listen, I don't mean to get hokey, but Jesus is still doing resurrections. He's still meeting people in their suffering and in their difficulty when they come to the end of himself and he's touching their lives and he's teaching them to know and to experience him for who he is, that he is the great resurrecting God. Paul says, I've been there. Now the entire tone changes in verse 10. What explodes out of Paul is this conviction about God and who he is. Look at verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, literally so great a death. 
past tense, watch the verbs, and he will deliver us. Which means when? Past or future? Future. Not only that, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us Again, this great resurrecting God has given us a testimony of the time when he worked in my life, when I was at the end of myself, and he came through and was the great resurrecting God. Therefore, I can count on him to do it again. And I can count on him to do it all the way into eternity. So that even when physical death takes my life, my hope when I go into the grave is that Jesus loves me, Jesus knows me, and Jesus will raise me from the dead. This reorients all of Paul's perspective on affliction, suffering, and God himself. He sees God in new ways as a result of the affliction. He's experienced God in new ways as a result of the affliction. He's more confident in God that now the resurrecting God has more to say in the inner courtroom of his life and his mind than affliction does. That how he feels about his affliction no longer has the last word in his heart. Rather, Paul now lives in light of the fact of this God that I know who will give resurrections. See, death has gotten small. Affliction has gotten small. God has gotten big. God has gotten glorious. God has gotten magnificent to Paul. You with me? Now, there's two things in this passage that we've been given about God. One is that God is the great comforter when we go through affliction, right? That was what he said last week. Two is that God is the great resurrecting God. That God is faithful in our affliction and sufferings that we experience to give us a taste of who he is by bringing us to the end of ourselves And then having us experience in the inside of who we are and in our relationship with him, the fact that he does resurrections. So we've been watching the tension, haven't we, between Paul's experience and the Corinthian church's experience. Last week, Paul says, I'm certain that when you go through affliction and you go go through suffering, God will be there, I promise you. And whatever distance there was between Paul's experience and the Corinthian church's experience is closed by verse 11. We could end right there, couldn't we? On the God who raises the dead. On the fact that the resurrection ought to have more to say in our heart and in our mind than our afflictions and our struggles should. That's pretty good preaching, right? That's pretty good news. But Paul now moves and he invites the Corinthian church into something with him that he's experienced and he knows about God. And he's going to invite them to participate in the same thing that he's experiencing. The same life change and heart change that he's experiencing. Look at verse 11. You also. Now why also? Who is also? Why are they the also? Who has helped Paul? Who has resurrected Paul? Who's flooded Paul's life and mind and heart with the fact that he is a resurrecting God? It's God. God has met Paul. But number two, Paul says, I need you to pray. I need you also to help me. You must help. You know what the help word is? Remember uh, we talked about... um, as you patiently endure the sufferings of Christ. Remember that just earlier in the passage? And we said that that word was made up of two words. It means to stay under. Help here 
is made up of three pieces of Greek words. And the three pieces of Greek words are with, under, and work. So here's Paul staying uh, as you patiently endure, right? As you stay under the weight of those afflictions and those pressures. And then he says, you must help us by what? Prayer. Praying is coming with, under the work. You ever try to lift up something heavy? You ever see those big boxes that say two-man lift? And you're 24 and you go, I can get it on my shoulder and up the stairs three flights. It don't matter to me. I can do it on my own. And you get a hernia and then you find out there's a reason they put that statement on the box that says two-man lift. Don't ask too many guys in here laughing right now. Too many of that experience. You must help us by prayer. Here's what a praying church does for Paul. Paul believes that a praying church um, participates with him in his sufferings and in his experience with God. Now watch this. Uh, you remember Acts, Acts 12, Herod throws James into, the church, into prison, and then he, because the Jews really like that idea, Herod throws Peter into prison. And it says in Acts 12, verse 5, that uh, Peter was thrown into prison, but many prayers were given by the church for Peter. And it's this awesome passage that Acts 12, an angel shows up and lets Peter out. And Peter walks down the street and through the gate and past the guards. There's four groups of guards who are all laying or all trying to take care of Peter. All the shackles fall off. He walks out of the prison. He shows up at the prayer meeting. He says, hey, it's me. I'm here. A little servant girl comes to Peter and goes, oh, gosh, it's Peter. I better go tell people. She goes and tells people, they go, you're talking crazy. It must be Peter's angel. She comes back to Peter, and Peter is waiting. And it says in Acts 12 that Peter comes in and tells them exactly what happened as a result of their prayers. And Paul says here that our participation as a church with those people who are on the front lines for gospel ministry can actually be a part of joining with God in his work and supporting those who are on the front lines. See, our participation flows like this. Look at what it says. You must also help us by prayer. Uh, where's the remainder of the verse? There it is. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Many there is not many people. It's literally many faces. Everybody look at the ceiling real quick. That's what prayer should look like. This is the picture that Paul wants you to have about a praying church. Do it again. Everybody look at the ceiling. I know it feels awkward. Don't look around. This is, God, this is the picture in Paul's mind. The entire church joined together, shoulder to shoulder, looking to God for God to do something that only God can do. And Paul says, you must help us. I need your prayers because I'm at the end of myself, I'm feeling the despair, and I'm experiencing God as the resurrecting God, and therefore when you pray and God answers, and I experience it, that you now, church, give thanks for what God alone did. This is so weighed on me this week for our church, 
that our church might be a praying, God-dependent, faces up, looking to him to do things that only he can do kind of church. See, Paul's whole goal when he deals with affliction in the life of the church is that God would get the glory. Paul's whole goal with his life as he goes through difficulty and hardship and is brought to the end of himself and requests prayer and experiences God in new ways is that God might be revealed for who he is, that the church might see that their prayers and intercession for Paul to God would be answered and then the whole church would say, look what God did. Look at how God rescued and showed up and was the resurrecting, comforting God. So 2 Corinthians 1, there's two big things. Number one, we looked at this last week, but there is a reality that you can know God as a result of the afflictions that you experience for him. That you can know him in new ways, that there's an invitation in your sufferings and your afflictions as you take a stand at work for believing who Jesus is and what he has done. As you raise your kids who were conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. As you disciple them and pray for them and plead for them and go through the difficulty of what it means to lay down your life to disciple somebody else, to take a stand in this culture or at work for the sake of Christ in his name, that God will draw near to you and comfort you and be your encourager. But number two is the fact that when we pray, we see things that we can't see without prayer. This is what Paul says. This is the point right here, that when the whole church looks up and prays to God, you can't see spiritual realities without prayer. You can't see God at work in the life of people without prayer. You can't see God at work in the life of the church without prayer, because what prayer does is brings us to the end of ourselves and asks God to do resurrecting kind of things in the life of our church. When we gather together tonight as a church to pray, That room is filled with, one, people who are not relying on themselves. Right? That's what prayer is. And number two, they're expectant people because they believe we have a resurrecting kind of God. That this God enters in and does things that nobody else can do. Don't you want that as a church? Gosh, I want that as a church for us. For us to know God in new ways, experience God in new ways, to pray to God, to give thanks for the fact that our God is at work among us. That our God is a resurrecting kind of God. That he will bring people to faith and knowledge of himself. That as we take a stand in the culture and we draw near to him, we'll experience his comfort, experience his power. That we'll all give thanks for who he is and what he does. That's the goal of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is why Paul opens his heart to show you what it means to walk with God. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for our family. That's what I want for our church. That's what I want for you. That our church would enter into a distinctly spiritual relationship with God and know him in new ways, experience that resurrection power for his glory and his name alone. Father, What an important text this is for us as we consider your word and your goodness to us. Father, may many faces look to you in prayer, expectant, 
God-honoring prayer. And would you do things among us in our church as we seek to take a stand for you in this city, in this culture, as we seek to be obedient to you in the things that you call us to? Would we be a church that's characterized by prayer? That we would not be men and women who rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And Father, would we give thanks and would you please open our eyes to be able to see things about you that, uh, and where you're working that maybe we don't see and we don't recognize. That as we commit to prayer, would you show us yourself? Would you teach us about yourself? Would you draw near to us in intimacy and help us to grow into maturity, to be more confident of your goodness to us, to be more confident of your power as a resurrecting kind of God? We only come through the powerful and mighty resurrected name of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.